turn to um, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Galatians and John this morning. We're going to resume our series in the Gospel of John this week. We're going to talk about bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what I want to do this week is I want to just spend a very, very tiny amount of time in John 7, 37 through 39, and spend most of our time in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. The reason why is because Jesus has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, a lot, and it's really transformative. But I really felt like I wanted to spend just a little bit of time kind of explaining something that Jesus says in this verse. We looked at this the last time we were in John. Jesus is in the midst of the feast, and he stands up with a loud voice. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, that's a wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit, but what does it mean? Like, what does it mean practically that that happens? Well, I believe Paul explains practically what that happens in Galatians 5, uh, 19 and following, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus talks about the river, that's one figure of speech. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that's another figure of speech. They both refer to the same thing. Out of our heart comes something that produces life. And I want to show us what that is this morning. Uh, as we begin, I want to take you back to the year 1998. I want to take you back to uh, the city of Samara, Russia, to the village of Zubchininovka, Russia. Not really a village, but kind of a city in its own right. And uh, we went through those, those buildings right there, sharing the gospel door to door, inviting people to an event at that night at the cultural center. And over the next five years, we helped construct this church building in Zubchinitivka. So let me tell you what happened the first time we were there. We went through the apartments sharing the gospel, and let me tell you, we were hungry. And we were, we were invited to a church member's house, and we got to the church member's house. One thing, we were lavished with really good Russian food. It was, it was really good. But one of the things that really surprised me was the size of the cabbages. They were massive. They were massive like, like bowling balls, like basketballs, like beach balls. Maybe not quite that big, but they were, they were big. And I asked the host, like, why are your cabbages so huge? And he says, it's the summer sun. He says, what happens when you, when you get long periods of sunlight is that there's this scientific thing that happens this photosynthesis intensity that happens that makes them grow very big and very sweet at the same time. It's all about the sun. So you get cabbages that look like this. Now, the cabbages we saw were not quite that big, but they were close. That is a massive cabbage. Or you get carrots that are this big. Those are big, big vegetables, right? And the reason why that happens is because in the, in the long summer sun, this photosynthesis becomes very intense and it drives nutrients into those plants and they become very big. Now, when Paul is writing 
Galatians chapter 5, he's writing to people who aren't living in Russia, but people living in Turkey. And Turkey was a very profusely rich place for the growing of fruits and vegetables. I've been there twice. And oh my gosh, the fruits and the vegetables are amazing in Turkey. And so when Paul wants to write about something that is lush and verdant and powerful and lifelike, he writes about fruit. Why does Jesus use a river? Why? Well, because that was the whole point of the Feast of, of uh, that they, they were the Feast of Tabernacles right, that right then was that there was this water ceremony. And so the water pictured life. Why does Paul, writing to the Galatians, far away from Jerusalem, use, use fruit? It's because the fruit talks about life that flows from deep inside. And so um, we're going to look at that this morning, and here's, and here's how we're going to do it. Option one we're going to look at is the deeds of the flesh, 519 to 21. Option two is the fruit of the Spirit, 522 and 23. And option, then we got a decision. What does it mean to move toward the Spirit? So let's look at, at option one. What are the deeds of the flesh? What Paul's going to say is that doing the deeds of the flesh results in a sort of disintegrated life. Here's how he puts it. The works of the flesh are evident. Now, we're going to see what those are in just a second. But what is the flesh? The flesh is our inner inclination to sin. It's our old nature. It's that hold over nature from what we were prior to the time that we came to Christ. He's referring to old habits, old ways of feeling good about ourselves, old ways of handling stress, old ways of finding a significance. Now, when you came to Christ, what did you receive? A new nature. Now, does your old nature suddenly go away and it's not there anymore? No. You still have that, that old nature. You are fundamentally a new person. At the level of your identity, that new nature is the real you. But that old nature is still hanging around and capable of springing back up. I like how this author put it. The flesh refers to that part of us that's alienated from God. It's the rebellious, unruly, obstinate part of our inner selves. Do any of you have an obstinate, unruly part in you? I do. I've got that inside me. If you don't think you have it, ask your spouse. Our flesh is that part of us that does not want to be told what to do. It's stubborn. It refuses correction. It doesn't want to have a thing to do with God. It recoils at anything that might cause me to be diminished or something less than what I want to be, which is the center of the universe. I know that you're all looking very good out there right now, but all of you would love to be the center of your universe from time to time. And when you're not, the flesh springs up and says, I'm going to get my way. I want to be the center of the universe. Now, it's a little bit like my dog, Sadie. When we got Sadie... I really wanted Sadie to be a very, very good dog. And so we, we really trained her really well. We slacked off in the past few years, I'm afraid, but we really wanted her to be a good dog. And one of the things we trained her to do was that when, when the food is in the bowl, she must lay down and she cannot go to the bowl until I tell her. And sometimes she'll, she's like this, you know, thinking I'm going to tell her. No, 
And I say, go get your food. Go get your food. I mean, I wanted to be a good dog. But let me tell you something. Her, she's got that undisciplined doggy nature. And if I drop a piece of food on the floor, guess what Sadie does? She makes a beeline to that food because that doggy nature is still there. She's got a good nature that I've helped train her to have, but that doggy nature is still there. You have inside you a predisposition toward the flesh that's going to be with you till the day you die. Here's the amazing news that Paul's going to tell us. You don't have to give in to that old nature, but I'm getting way ahead of myself, okay? So <clears throat> at this point, Paul is going to give us four dimensions of what the flesh looks like. Paul gives lists of things that we're to not do in the New Testament. Here's one of those lists. Here's what Paul says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. He's going to give us four categories of the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's, that's one category. The next category is idolatry and sorcery. The next one are eight character qualities that are all under the same category, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Then he gives us a fourth one, which is drunkenness and orgies. Then he gives us a fifth one, which is a catch-all category. Things like these. So if you were to say, well, I didn't fall into that category, uh, Paul's not going to get you off the hook. He's going to say, yeah, there's some other things. You know what they are. These are things that you think about doing. And, and I'm going I'm to warn you about these as well. So let me, let me give you the categories. First of all, the flesh gets expressed in sexual ways. The word originally was a word that meant pornography, porneo. And he's talking about things that get expressed in physical ways. He talks about the fact that there's impurity and sensuality connected to this. What Paul says is one of the deeds of the flesh shows up when we take our sexuality and say, I, I want to be the center of my universe with respect to this gift that God has given me. That's the flesh. Then he uses, he goes to another category, and that is the flesh expresses itself in religious ways. He uses two words, idolatry and sorcery. Both of these things refer to religion. And we might expect, you know, Paul to go from sex to money or sex to power. He goes from sex to religion. And the reason why is because, because these are both, can be substitutes for God. One is a body substitute for God. The other one is a spirit substitute for God. Remember what the flesh does is it says, I want to be in the center of my universe, and I don't want God to have a say about my life. And I can do that with my body. I can do it with my spirit. That's so what Paul is saying. The flesh shows up both in what I want to do with my body and sometimes with what I want to do with my spirit. I want to do things with my spirit and be religious in ways where I don't need God. I mean, I'm sure sometimes you've thought about churches that are obsessively legalistic with many, many different kinds of rules. How does that feel? It feels feels awkward and it feels like I'm, I'm getting religion in the way of the relationship that I have with God. 
the flesh can do that, can show up in religious ways as well as physical ways. Paul gives us a third dimension, and the third dimension are these, these, eight, these eight different words, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissension, and so on. I want you to notice two kinds of words in this verse, words that indicate mild disunion and words that indicate the fracturing of relationships. And the two are really important to think about. Disunion is a mental sin. I can be mentally disengaged with a relationship. There are times in our marriage where Cindy may do something and I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of irritated, maybe. And so there's a, a mental disunion. Now, if, if I take that mental disunion and I become offended by that, I then can cause active division in our relationship. The flesh loves to do that. It loves to take little small disunions and fracture them into major divisions in relationships because I allow myself to be offended by what somebody, somebody else did. By the way, going from mental offense to active division can happen within any personality type, right? It can happen if you're passive-aggressive. You can do it passive-aggressively. It can happen if you're highly narcissistic. It can happen even if you're a super nice person. All personality types have an activity in the flesh where they take offense at what somebody does and they move to active disunion. That's the flesh. Then he moves to this, this, uh, this next one, which is addictive patterns, uh, drunkenness and orgies, describing two things that in the ancient world were symbols of, of addiction. So what, one of the things that happens with the flesh is that you give in to certain habits and you say, I can control this, I can control this, I can stop this anytime I want. I can control this. And then what happens is I can't control this anymore. What the, what's happened is the flesh has allowed me to give in to those things which have become enslaving. So the flesh sometimes feels really good at the outset of a thing, and then it gets enslaved at the onset of the, of the addiction. And again, you could say, well, I don't fit any of those categories, Paul says, you're not off the hook because things like these are things that you can probably think about in your mind. Now, Paul gives a warning in verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's the question. If you give into the flesh, what does this mean? Does this mean, okay, if I give into the flesh, I guess I'm not going to go to heaven. That's one way of putting it, and a lot of people do put it that way. But Paul can't be meaning that. He can't be meaning that because in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about justification by faith, particularly in 2.14 and 15. And what Paul is saying is that when I am justified by faith in Christ, God makes a permanent decision with regard to me. He says, I declare Rod McElvain to be not guilty of all sins, past, present, and future. He's not guilty. Moreover, I declare Rod McElvain to be righteous. Now, when God makes that declaration of justification by faith, that is a permanent 
declaration in God. God makes a permanent declaration. I declare you not guilty. I declare you righteous. That's an amazing declaration. So Paul can't mean that people who give into the flesh are going to somehow not going to go to heaven and, and lose out. Here's what Paul does mean. What Paul means is that those who give into the flesh will not inherit the kingdom like they would if they didn't give into the flesh. In other words, in other words, we become heirs, we all become heirs of God's kingdom, but some more than others. This is the doctrine of rewards taught in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, that there are varying degrees of rewards. We may be saved if we know Christ, but we'll have different levels of rewards. If I come to Christ and my whole life I'm struggling and agonizing, giving into the flesh here, giving into the flesh there, and then I pass away, and somebody else is radically dedicated to God his whole life long, who receives the greater reward? The person who is dedicated. Both may enter into the kingdom of God and go to heaven, but the one who is more dedicated wins more reward. And what he's saying is, those who are doing such things on a regular basis, they're not going to inherit God's kingdom the way they would if they were radically dependent and totally devoted toward, toward God. Giving into the flesh is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. So now we switch to option number two, and that is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which is verse 22 and, and 23. Now, here's what Paul says. But the fruit of the Spirit is... Now, pause there for a second. Just like he gave four categories of the flesh plus a fifth catch-all category, Paul is going to give us three categories of the fruit of the Spirit, three triads, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he says, against such things there is no law. Now, let me point out a few things about the definition of your position in the Spirit. And we talked about the definition of the flesh. Let me talk about how I'm defining your position in the Spirit. Because once you come to Christ, the Spirit comes into you and He's there forever. It's like what Jesus said in John chapter 7. Out of His Spirit will flow rivers of living water. There's something spiritual deep inside us. And something is flowing out of that place. And that's because we have a position in the Spirit. So let me tell you what your position is. Think about this. If you are in the military, you have a position, right? You have a position. You have a rank. In that rank, you are subordinate to somebody. You are leading someone else. And you have peers on a team. You have a position that is highly structured and highly organized. You violate that position, there are problems. Same thing is true as a parent. As a parent, you have a position. Your position is mom or dad. And that position has certain responsibilities. A dad has certain responsibilities to his son that are slightly different than his responsibilities to his daughter. A mom has certain responsibilities to her daughter that are slightly different than her responsibilities to her son. We have positions. And those positions come to us by virtue of the fact 
that we're parents. You have a position in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit comes into your life, and now you are positionally different. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> there are five things that are true of your position in the Spirit. Number one, regeneration. When I came to Christ, the Spirit granted me spiritual life inside me. I now, at the deepest level of my being, have the Spirit resident inside me. He transformed me. Indwelling is the idea that He is inside me. He's inside me to transform. He's inside me to make me different. Baptism is the concept of that He brings me into Jesus' body. By one Spirit, Paul says, we're all baptized into the body of Christ. Now, there's other meanings of the word baptism in the Spirit used in other places, but at least here, he's talking about bringing us into the body of Christ. Sealing is the idea that I am the heir of Christ. The mark of Jesus' ownership is upon me. The stamp of his ownership is upon me. And then guidance, um, he leads me continually. So here you think about these five elements of my position. Who am I in the Spirit? Well, I'm regenerate. I'm indwelt by Him. I'm baptized by Him. I've been sealed by Him, and I'm being guided by Him. Those things are always true of me my entire life long. I have a position in the Spirit. You could put this another way. Regeneration means I have new life. Indwelling means I have His divine life. Baptism means I have this corporate life in the Spirit. Sealing means I have rich life. I'm the heir of Christ. And then guidance means I have this exciting life where He is guiding me in real time into uh, more and more of His, of His will. So that's our position in the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do when he, get, when he comes inside us? He begins to produce some fruit. Now let me explain a few things about, about fruit. There are nine character qualities called fruit, nine character qualities. Um, these are very desirable qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Anybody who looks at those would, get, would go, I want those. Those are pretty cool. I need those in my life. Another observation is that the term fruit is singular. It doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. It's, it's fruit singular meaning that these nine things are designed to show up in an integrated way. It's not like I can say, well, I've been really loving today, and that's all I need to work on. I'm good. I had no self-control, but that's okay. I got the love part down. They're not designed to work that way. They're designed to work as an integrated whole, all nine together designed to work as an integrated unit. Um, and then the third observation, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. Like, I might be able to ramp up love in my humanity. I might be able to ramp up self-control in my humanity. I might be able to do that. Some people are very gifted. They can ramp up these things. And honestly, I'm glad they can. I really am. Because societies always operate on character. And if someone were to take the nine fruit of the Spirit and say, I'm going to develop these as character qualities, that's fabulous. That's really good. That's not the way they're designed to work in Paul's writings in Galatians chapter 5. The way they're designed to work is that the Spirit 
produces these as the fruit of your relationship with Him. In other words, you relate to the Spirit and He produces the love. He produces the joy and so on. Um, this is the fruit of the Spirit. He's the one who, who does this. Now, let's dig into the details. The first triad is love, joy, and peace. Okay, so the Spirit is going to work supernaturally in my life, and He's going to inspire love within me. Now, I don't know how you felt when you first became a Christian, but when I first became a Christian, I went to a small Bible study in Thienesville, Wisconsin. It was down in the basement. And it was, uh, it was like a September evening, or probably an October evening. We had just moved to Milwaukee. My good friend invited me to this Bible study. I went down the basement into this Bible study, and I was flooded with a sense of the love of the Spirit in that Bible study. That sense of love flowed with me for the following week. And I thought, wow, there is something unique. I didn't know how to use all these Christian words at that point. In time, but there's something going on here. And I, I would ask people, what, like, like what, what is it that like, I feel when I'm part of this group? And um, the leader said, well, this is, this is the love of the Holy Spirit. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That, that shows up when you're walking in Him. So what does, the, what does the, the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit produces that love, and what's the outflow of that? It's joy. I felt joy in the after. I felt the, the love for sure. Then the outcome of that was the joy that came, and the outcome of that was the peace that I had. So I encounter the love. I feel this intense joy. And then it's like I, oh man, I feel a sense of well-being. It is well with my soul. When I came to Christ, we had just moved from Chicago to Milwaukee, and it was really a rough move for our family. Uh, my dad was in the corporate world and, and kind of rising up the corporate ladder, but it was just a, just a tough move, my perception of it for our family. I went to this Bible study. And I had the love, joy, peace triad within the first month of going to that study. It was like the peace of God came over me, and I thought as a teenager, like, okay, it's all going to turn out okay. I've talked to adults who've encountered that same thing. Somebody working in a prison ministry where that prisoner came to Christ, flooded with the love of God, felt the joy of God, and then felt the peace of God and said, you know what? I'm in prison but it's well with my soul, even though I'm here. Love, joy, and peace are designed to work, to work together. It's the upward connection that you have with the Father. Then we go to the second triad, which is patience, kindness, and goodness. This is the triad that moves out toward people. It's the fruit of the Spirit that moves outward toward family and friends, spouse, children, people that you are, that you are working with. So the Spirit now works in my heart and relationships. I'm, mo I'm motivated to be patience. You know what? Patience is self-restraint with respect toward your expectations toward people, right? You have any expectations toward people? Yeah. And patience is, is allowing yourself to have some restraint on those expectations, to be patient means to allow that 
self-restraint to take place. That means I'm curious. Patience means I'm curious. What's going on in this person's life? What speed am I operating on? Why is their speed slower? Is my expectation that their speed be my speed a realistic expectation? If I go on a walk with my grandson who's four years old, is it reasonable for me to think that he can walk as fast as I can? Unreasonable. And if I were impatient saying, come on, keep up, you'd say, what's wrong with you? That's unreasonable. What the Spirit does is the Spirit inspires that curiosity that says, is my speed reasonable right now? What happens when the Spirit does this? What comes next? That I become kind. Okay? It, with my grandson, you know, it's unreasonable for me to think he can walk at my speed. So I'm now kind. I slow down. And I allow him to walk at the speed with which I walk. Okay, patience leads to kindness. Kindness then leads to goodness. I actually do the good thing. Good is tangible. It's a tangible good. I do good by walking slowly with my grandson. So this triad works together in a wonderful way. The Spirit prompts me to be patient. In that, in that patience, what I'm going to do is be kind. In that kindness, what I'm going to do is be good. It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And then we go to, um, to the third triad, with which, which is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if the first triad is upward toward God, and the second triad is outward toward people, the third triad is inward, back toward me, back toward me. So what happens is the Spirit um, begins to inspire me toward personal faithfulness. I'm trusting and depending upon the resources of God 24-7. I'm holding fast to Jesus moment by moment. I'm depending upon Him. I'm depending upon the fullness of the Spirit. I'm faithful to the person in whom I'm in a relationship with. And if I'm holding fast to Jesus in real time, what comes next is gentleness. Now, gentleness is a little bit confusing. What gentleness really meant was power under control. The word gentle was used for the, for the horse that had a bit put in his mouth. And that horse was powerful, but with a bit in its mouth, that power was under control of the rider. So as I'm personally faithful to Jesus, depending upon the Spirit, I now have power that's under control. And what do I do with that power under control? I now have self-control. I can control myself. I love this idea of self-control because... There are two kinds of self-control. There is, there is self-control which, which restricts activity and self-control which releases activity. If I, if I want to run a marathon, what do I have to do? I've got to train. I've got to train in what I eat. I've got to train in how I run. I've got to train in how I think. I've got to train. Okay? That's the self-control that restricts certain things. I train so that I can be free, free to run a marathon. I will tell you right now, I am not free to run a marathon. If you were to say, are right, we going to go outside here and ride, you're going to run a marathon. I'm not free to do that because I have not restricted myself to the disciplines that would allow me to run a marathon. But what happens when you have trained and you're free to run a marathon? Then your self-control 
is an unrestricted self-control and you're free to run and you're free to enjoy what you've done. Self-control is like that. Certain aspects of self-control I restrict in some areas so that I can be free in other areas. I restrict my affections for other people so that I can invest them and be free to invest them fully with my wife. That's self-control. That's good, healthy, robust, beautiful self-control. What the Spirit does is He inspires that in us through these three triads. Lest we forget, Paul wants to remind us that this is not about trying hard in the flesh because he, he says, he says, against such things there is no law. He's saying this comes about through your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now we come to decision time. We've got the deeds of the flesh, we've got the fruit of the Spirit, and then we say, okay, so how am, how am I going to make the switch from flesh to spirit? Well, here's what he says in 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is not easy to understand, is it? That's hard to understand. So let me smooth out the language into 21st century um, lingo. What, what, he's, what he's saying is that um, when we came to Christ, we were co-crucified with Jesus. We made a choice to come to Jesus. When we came to Jesus, we were identified with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. We made that decision the moment we came to Christ. He's talking about the idea of co-crucifixion. I come to Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Well, what happened at that, at that point in time? My flesh ceased to become the primary thing about me. What became the primary thing about me was the spirit inside me. I still have the flesh, but that was crucified. That was rendered potentially inoperative when I came to Christ. And as I moment by moment continue to remember, my flesh was crucified when I came to Christ. My flesh was crucified. My, crush, my, my, my flesh is not powerful like it was before. My flesh is not dominant like it used to be. I have a new position now. My position is not primarily me-ism. My position primarily is that God rules and God reigns in my life. He's talking about the moment-by-moment -moment choice to remember our co-crucifixion with Christ. This is very similar to what Jesus said. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross monthly, weekly, yearly, daily, and follow me. This is before the cross, obviously. But this makes so much more sense in light of the cross because what I do is every day I remember, I am not the person I used to be. My flesh may seem strong, but the spirit is stronger. My flesh may seem like it's out of control, but greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And through Jesus' strength and the power of the Spirit, I can manifest the fruit of the Spirit in my life. So what do I do? Do I try it real hard? Okay, love, Rod. 
Love, show more love, show more love, show more love. Okay, no, okay, got the love down. Now be joyful, be joyful. No, no, okay, now, now be peaceful. Okay, be peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. Is, is that how we're supposed to do it? No, no. No, the way we do it is we build this relationship with the Spirit. Spirit, I love you. Spirit, thank you that you're in my life. Spirit, thank you that I am regenerate. Thank you that you sealed me. Spirit, thank you for your ministry of guidance. Spirit, I love you. It's carrying on this relationship with the Spirit. And as you do that, He begins to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. He produces that because that's His role in your life. And so He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. See, it's a daily thing. It's a moment-by-moment thing. I'm keeping in step with the Spirit, okay? I live by the Spirit positionally because He's in my life. Those five positions refer to this life by the Spirit, okay? So if that's my responsibility, i got to keep in step with the Spirit. As I am encountering things that inflame my flesh, what do I do? I say, Holy Spirit, I can't love this person right now. I am really mad at them. And if they're going to receive any love from me, it's got to come through you. Will you give me the power to love this person? Spirit, I have zero self-control right now. I'm about ready to make an impulse purchase on the internet that I'm about to hide from my spouse. I know that's wrong, but I really want what I see there. Holy Spirit, I am not going to exercise self-control unless you come in and you do something in my life. See, it's all about the relationship with the Spirit rather than trying really hard to produce the fruit by our sheer, sheer willpower. So I close, I close with, with this. this. This passage confronts a choice. And the choice is, do I give in to the flesh because it's pretty strong and it feels pretty good? Or do I manifest the fruit of the Spirit? These things look really good, but how do I make them in, come into my life? Well, the answer is it's a relationship. And so I'll, as we close in prayer, what I want to do is I want to, uh, um, I want to give you a time to, to pray through these things. Um, and so let's just bow before the Lord. We're going to turn off the lights. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and then we're going to have somebody come up and, and pray a closing prayer. But, um, but here's what I want you to pray silently, if this expresses your heart. Say, Father, I come to you now asking that you would bring the fruit of the Spirit into my life. Lord God, I pray this week that you would give me love, joy, and peace. Spirit, will you produce that for me this week? Ask him to produce that in your life. And then say to him, Lord, also, will you transform my relationships? Give me patience, kindness, and goodness. Lord, please help those show up in my life this week. Patience, kindness, and goodness. And then, Lord, I pray for those qualities that I need deep down in my personal life. Faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. Father, will you, will, you please, will you please produce those in my life? Ask him.